coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on July 31st, 2022. Growth, part two. I'd like to continue on our topic from last week. We were two weeks ago talking about what it means to be saved and being born again. Then last week we started the topic which involves more of our life, I think, and that has to do with our growth in Christ. Last week, we looked into the Corinthians and saw some concept that spelled out qualities that should be found in our lives. And uh, this week, uh, I'd like to take us on a, on a um, helicopter tour over the Sermon on the Mount and draw out concepts out of this message that Jesus gave that is probably his largest message that's recorded in Scripture <laughs> and speaks to uh, some truths that we like to pull out and talk about. So I'm going to give you some general things sort of to tuck away in your mind that I'll try and reference again as we go through just so that you know what I was looking at and so that you could look at them too. We often will say, and maybe you've heard it said, maybe you've said it, that Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Not a religion, but a relationship. And you go, yeah, well, that's quaint. That's clever wording, I suppose. Trying to distinguish that. But I hope to show that no uh, theologian came up with that unless you consider Jesus Christ as the great theologian. And he came up with it. And what I mean by that, we're going to look through this Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus then, as he was speaking to a large group of individuals, was talking about uh, truths about the kingdom of God. And, and as he speaks then, I want you to notice terms that he uses. And while I've preached on the Sermon on the Mount before, it wasn't until I was doing this study that these things hit me in a fresh way. And that is words that Jesus uses throughout this, this sermon that I hadn't caught before. Now, I've told you in times past that, that often Scripture is writing not to the world at large, but is writing specifically to followers of Christ. You go and look at the epistles that Paul writes. He's writing to the church at Corinth. He's writing to the church at Rome. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to the church in Galatia. He's writing to the church. Well, you get the point. Yes. He's writing to believers. And so the truths that are put in there, he is speaking to already those who are in relationship with God. 
But I want you to note some statements that are made here. And down in uh, chapter 5, verse 45, and we'll back up a little bit from here. 545, he says, he says, I love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he talks about in terms of a relationship, a son to a father. And that's where I want to go with this topic of growing. It is in relationship with the Heavenly Father, which is kind of intriguing because Jesus is there on the scene. He is presenting himself as Son of God, Son of Man. And as he proclaims these things, who does he keep pointing to? Himself? No. He keeps pointing to the Father. And then he talks in terms of a relationship with those that are listening, not to him, but to his father. He uses words like this. You and your and my and us and our and own. This is our own thing. And he uses other words, other pronouns to contrast. He talks about others and they and them. So they're distinguishing, even in the midst of this message, between two groups of people. When he uses nouns, he talks about, as we saw here, sons and brothers and those that are good and just. He then talks in contrast to those that are evil, to those that are unjust, to those that are enemies, Tax collectors, of course, they were always the bad guys. Gentiles, hypocrites, and workers of lawlessness. So he draws a distinction between these two groups. And he focuses, when he looks at the negative, only to contrast it to the positive relationship that a believer has with God or Heavenly Father. And let's just pause, pause for a moment and think about how intimate a term that is. Because what I believe that we're dealing with here and talking about understanding our growth as believers, we need to think in terms of the relationship between a child and his father. Now, I get it. Not everybody had a good home life. Not everybody had a good father. But even those that didn't have a good father can imagine because they can contrast it to the father that they had. So when we talk about a father, we're talking about a heavenly father who is good and perfect and loving and caring. And Jesus Christ, in speaking this sermon in giving this message, takes this group of people and points them to the Heavenly Father. Talks about relationship. Now, what kind of father is this? Well, he uses a phrase often all through this passage here. He will describe them this way. I'll just pick one example. 
and we will come back and touch on it again. He says, first of all, your, your father is your father. And then he goes on and clarifies, he says, who is in heaven. So we know that he's not talking about our earthly fathers here. He's talking about the heavenly father. And he says, he's yours. We talk about a relationship as opposed to religion. That's the crux of it. Because other religions might have a way of getting in in relationship to their God. But they don't have that intimacy of a child to his father. And Jesus comes and underscores that time and time and time again in the Sermon on the Mount. As he's building this argument for what is it like to, to be a part of the kingdom of God. Our first section that I'd have you look at is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Let me read these for you, and you can follow along in your Bible. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not one iota or dot shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these of the least of the commandments, in other words, let him go slack, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the right that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven that he's talking about? It's where your father is the king. Your father is the king. We've talked about this illustration before, but... It sticks in my mind, and I hope that it becomes a good illustration to you. Back in the days of of JFK, we had pictures of the Oval Office. And here it is, you know, this office where one of the most powerful men in one of the most powerful countries, and he was the, the overseer of this country, he this is where he did his work. And so people would be granted access into CJFK, and he would be able to discuss with them, either people from his cabinet or some from the legislature. He would deal with heads of state, and that's where he would deal with them. And it was a place that was, it endures, endures power and strength. But that isn't what caught my mind, caught a picture in my mind. It was when little John John would run in there and climb up in daddy's lap or play underneath daddy's desk. And we have this contrast, powerful men and a dad. And I want you to keep that picture 
Because I think that's what Jesus is painting here for us. He talks about the kingdom of heaven where the father is the king. But he's your father, he's your dad. And so what goes on through this this account in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of this intimate father. Intimate father. Now, obviously, I'm going to be skipping over sections in the Sermon on the Mount um, because I wanted to focus on those passages that uh, had some of these terms in them. And let's begin with chapter 5 and verse 14. In 14 through 16, Jesus is talking, and he had already talked about being the salt of the earth. But he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we have that phrase, your Father who is in heaven. So I titled this one, Make Your Father Proud. It says, you are the light on the hill, and he can't be hidden. It's going to be seen for a long way off. He says, but let your light shine in a, in before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father. In other words, when Jesus is talking about this idea of the impact of a believer in this world, he describes it as light compared to darkness. And he said, let it shine. And what would happen if it shines the way that it's supposed to? Your father is glorified. Your father is glorified. Well, each one of these could be a message in and of itself. But we're back on the helicopter and flying some more. Here we go. We go down further in here. We get to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. And we read these words. Backing up to 43. I say, uh, you have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Hmm. Love and, and pray for them. Okay. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you than doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here he calls for actions 
of his children and he says, I want you to be like your father who loves. How did God love us? Send his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He says, and I want you to pray for those that persecute you. Don't you think that Jesus Christ prayed for those even as they put him to death? Then he says, how about greeting them? Do you say hi and are they welcome in your world? These enemies of you, those that persecute you, you say, hi, how are you doing? Good to see you. You go, is that what they're expecting? No. It says the enemies knows how to treat one another that way. But when it comes to an enemy, they don't treat their enemies that way. He says, but you have an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. How are you supposed to act? Hmm. He said, you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So our actions are love, pray, greet, and be perfect. You go, oh my. We got a little bit of living to do, don't we? <laughs> we certainly do. And you go, but pastor, I know myself well enough to know that I'm not going to be perfect. Not in this lifetime, I can tell you. Well, God knows that too. First, first John, it says, if anybody says he is without sin, he's a liar. God, God knows. What is this that he's talking about? a call on our life to be like our Father. Are we going to do it in this lifetime? No, we're going to struggle to see that done in our life. But that's it. We should be desiring to see that worked out in our life. We are like our Heavenly Father. Moving on. Hopping in our helicopter to chapter 6, but we're not going far. Verse 1. He says... Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Your Father who is in heaven is watching. What's the problem of practicing your righteousness before men? Nothing. He didn't condemn practicing your righteousness before men. What he condemned was practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them and get their accolades. His condemnation here wasn't for them living a righteous life. It was doing it for a show. And the Pharisees were well known for doing that. They would get dressed up and they would march through town and people would pass, let them pass, and they would pull aside and... There goes a Pharisee. And they loved it. He says, don't, don't do it so that others may praise you. Don't do it in order to be seen by them. So guard your motives. Guard your motives. Why do you do what you do? And the whole thrust of this section 
on the Sermon on the Mount is we ought to be paying attention not to what others think about us, but what does the Heavenly Father think about us? That's another whole ballgame, isn't it? That's another whole different way to look at it. He goes on from there in verses 3 and 4. He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You go, well, how can my right hand do something that my left hand doesn't know what it's doing? He's drawing this as a strong contrast to those who we see in the gospel accounts where they would go and take their money and say, is everybody looking here? I'm going to put some in the... No, not enough people are waiting, looking. Okay, there's a lot of people looking now. I'll put it in the offering plate. He says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, this should be so much a matter of not secrecy in the sense that you can't, it can't be known. But again, it goes back to what was in verse 1. This isn't for show. This isn't so people will say, man, did you see what they put in? You know, it's like that. The guy who pulls out a big wad of bills, he stuffs it in an envelope, and now you got a wad of bills in the envelope, and drop it in the offering plate. What they didn't see was they were all ones, and he gave about 11 bucks. Now, I'm not telling you to put money in the offering. That's not the point of this. But it was done for show. That's the point. And Jesus said, don't do it that way. What you're going to give, give. Your Heavenly Father is going to see what you do. It isn't so that you can get the accolades of others. So what we have here, he says, so the giving may be in secret. The giving may be in secret. And we have the first of several statements like that that Jesus drops in here. He says, who is this between anyway? He says, it's not between any of your fellow believers. It's not between you and the world. It's between you and your father. He says, he's going to see. He says, if you do it to be seen, You've lost all reward. If you get the accolades of others and go, oh my, what a giver he is. He says, you've lost, you've, you just got all the reward you're going to get. He says, but you give it and you give it in secret. He says, then the Lord will know that you're doing it only because you're doing it out of love to him. And that's the point. Well, we're back in our helicopter, but we're not going far. We're going to verse 6. In verse 6, it says, 
when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And here we talk about praying. What are we to do? Pray in secret. And you go, well, Pastor Tim, I just saw you not too long and you were praying in public. They go, yeah, I was. And probably you've been called on and prayed in public in front of others. The point isn't you can't pray in public. The point is the majority of your prayer ought to be between you and the Lord. Quietly, privately. And any public prayers ought to be an extension of that. But it's quite a contrast to those who only pray in public and only pray in public so they can be seen by others. And Jesus paints this picture for these on the hillside that are listening to this message. And he's talking about a relationship with an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. He says, this isn't about others. It's about you too. And so once again, we have this idea of praying in secret. And then what comes up next is, is something more about prayer, but it has to do with what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it was the Lord's model prayer for his disciples. And you're familiar with the passage. I'm not even going to read it, except that he says, your father knows what you need before you ever ask in verse eight. And he starts the prayer, our father who art in heaven. You're in King James, which, you know, is the approved text. But anyway, by the way, this is the only place when he doesn't describe the Father as your Father. When he leads them in prayer, he says, our Father. He says, you can pray and have an intimate relationship with the Father who is head of the kingdom, who resides in heaven, and we can lift him up with the same language, our Father. So what he describes here, and we understand what prayer is, this is a conversation with the Father. And Jesus talks about them having a conversation with the Father. You ever had a private conversation with somebody? Well, of course you have, okay? There's things that you will say to another person you really don't want anybody else listening to. Why? Because you might be pouring out your heart about some sort of issue and some sort of situation and, and you're making some sort of appeal to the Heavenly Father. And you, it's just the two of you and you want the, this isn't something that you want broadcast to everybody else. Jesus said, that's the way it ought to be. 
you ought to be able to go to your heavenly father and lay out what's in your heart. And then as he describes, he says, Father, first of all, I want your kingdom to be done. I want your will to be done in your kingdom and here on earth. And I want you to supply my needs and give me daily bread and forgive us our debts because we certainly have them. And please guide me so you don't lead me into temptation. Deliver us from evil. That's what we want. He says, all these kind of things the Heavenly Father wants from you. Private, intimate conversation with your Father. After this prayer, he picks up that theme, having asked to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And in verse 14 and 15, he picks up 14, 15, he picks up this same theme and he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And I don't want to get into a big theological issue here about some sort of priority when it comes to if you got to do this in order to God does that. No. What he's saying is this relationship between you and the Father is going to slop all over your life with others. <laughs> and what they ought to see is this relationship that you have with the Father lived out in others too. And so he says, when it comes to forgiving them, forgive them. Why? In Ephesians it says, we've been forgiven. We know what it's like to experience forgiveness. We read a psalm today, Psalm 51. David writes this psalm beseeching the Lord to forgive him his sin and to cleanse him get to another psalm and he goes, thank you, Lord, for doing that. Amen. So we know what it's like to be forgiven. And Jesus says he's referring to this intimate relationship with the Father. He says we need to be like our Father who forgives and forgive others. Goes on from there and he talks about fasting. And you go, oh boy, let's move right on past this one. But he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. There's the point again. Why are you doing this? We go back to our motives. Why are you doing this? Why do you parade your righteousness in front of them? Why do you parade this fasting, miserable face because you're enduring for God's sake. He says, no. Truly I say to you, they receive their word when you fast. Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret again will reward you. And so we have, again, this idea 
What did he say? He says, I want you to give in secret. I want you to pray in secret. I want you to fast in secret. And you go, why? He says, because we take the public view out of it, we get down to brass tacks. If nobody can see why you're fasting, except the Lord, you do one of two things. Either don't fast, or you fast to the Lord. If, if we take the idea of praying out of the public sphere, and you don't do it so the public can see it, and it's just boiled down to you praying to the Father. You do one of two things. Either you don't pray or you sincerely pray to the Father. What about giving? Well, if you're not doing it so others can give you the accolades for giving and you're doing it in secret as he calls us to do, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to say, what good is it to give? I got other ways I can spend my money. If the public isn't going to see, what good am I getting from this? And so you don't do it. Or you're going to do it as an expression of your intimate relationship with the Father. You see where Jesus is going with this all the way through this sermon on the mount? I love verses 25 through 33. It's a longer section. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you eat, what you drink, about your body, what you put on. It is in life more than that. You go, well, I don't know. It consumes quite a bit. And he uses an illustration, verse 26. And he says, why are you anxious about these things? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow and they neither toil nor spin. But I, yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He says, God will take care of you. You ever plan a trip? When, when we were small, went on lots of trips. Dad and mom threw all the kids in, in the station wagon, literally threw us in because we didn't have seatbelts back then. We sort of bounced around in the back of the station wagon. But we went off to and saw places like Kings Canyon and and Bryce Canyon and the Grand Canyons, all those things, you know. Then we, from time to time, would pile in the station wagon, and drive from Southern California all the way across the United States, get into Florida and visit my mom's family, Central Florida. What did we think about that? 
We're going on a trip. And are we there yet? Right? And then we got there, we played, we had fun, we ate with our cousins and other relatives. Piled back in the station wagon, back across the country. Are we there yet? We get back to our own home. But you know, I don't ever, ever remember wondering where are we going to stop to get fuel? When we were hungry, my folks would pull into some restaurant. You might pass this on to Josh and Evelyn too, because this was a good plan. With four of us kids, right? We'd been bouncing around in the back of the car, and now we're going to go into a restaurant, right? So mom or dad would take turns, and they would go in, and they would ask for a booth, and they would order the meal for all of us. And when it was about ready to arrive, my mom or dad would wave through the window at the other parent, and they would round us up, bring us in, sit us down, and the food would be delivered. And they always put us in a big booth so mom could sit at one end and dad could sit at the other end, and we were blocked in between. But it was cool because there was no restless kids bouncing around in the booth. When we got in there, it was food time. We sat and ate. When we were done, we were out of there. But you know what? I don't ever remember planning that. I don't ever remember seeing if we had enough funds to make it across country. I don't ever remember any of the planning of it. We just went. Why? Was there somebody thinking about that? Yeah, mom and dad were. Mom and dad had mapped it out, picked out the route, knew how far they could go, and then they would have to stop. It wasn't my job as a kid, but that of a parent to provide food and clothing for the kids. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, don't be anxious about those things. Why? You got a Heavenly Father. That's His job. It's not your job. Don't fret over this stuff. Your job is to enjoy the life He's given to us. Your job is not to fret over this detailed stuff. Now, as we get to be adults, then we got that task, right? And we had kids, and then we have to plan. Do we have enough money to make this trip? Do we have enough? I don't ever remember thinking about having enough money to buy the car, much less putting fuel in it. But my folks did. Jesus said, Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father, verse 32, knows 
that you need all of them. And then he tells us what our job is. Look at verse 33. 633, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In other words, he says, your job is not to take care of all these things. Your job is to look to your father. Seek him. Seek his righteousness. And let him take care of the details. Two more and we'll be done. Chapter 7, he spends a, a section on judging others. We're going to pass that over. And then he, he talks about asking the Father. You could say, well, we could link this to prayer. But in verses 7 through 11, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And he says, and this is one of my great theological truths that I bank on. It's found in verse 11. He asked, he asked before we get there, he says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Now, he might ask for Twinkies in the store. You may not give him that. But if he asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? He says, no. Don't be ridiculous. He says, if you then, who are evil, can uh, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Just ask. And he will give, and he will give good. He knows how to give good gifts. See what Jesus is doing all the way through this message? He says, let's not talk about sacrifices and going to Jerusalem. He wasn't trying to dismiss all that. He says, but if you miss the idea of having a relent, an intimate relationship with a living God and calling God the Father your Heavenly Father and acting accordingly, you missed it. There's one time in this whole passage where he doesn't talk about our father or your father, but he talks about my father. And that's instructive. It's found in chapter 7, verses 21 and following. He's wrapping up his message. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the kingdom of heaven again. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? Then I will declare to him, to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And in this passage, he says, but the one who does the will of my father. If you have the same kind of response to the father as I have, which is willing obedience. Then you can enter the kingdom of heaven, but just because you say that you do, you won't. You go, well, oh, wait a minute. We've done lots of things in your name. And he says, I never knew you. Why? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Giving you the illustration before. Neighbor Higgins comes and I need our lawn mowed. So I said, he comes to the door and he says, I can mow your lawn for 20 bucks. I said, it sounds like a bargain to me. I will pay you 20 bucks and you mow the lawn. So close the door. He's puttering around in the yard. And after a while, he comes to the door and he goes, ready to be paid. And I look out over his shoulder and there's dandelions out in the grass. You go, just exactly what did you do? Well, I pulled some weeds in your flower bed. Well, that's good, but that's not what I wanted. What I wanted is for you to mow the lawn. That was our agreement. I, I would pay you if you mowed the lawn. He goes, well, I, I pulled weeds. I said, but that isn't what I want you to do. And he goes, okay, okay. So I closed the door, and he's puttering around. Comes back to the door. He says, okay, I'm ready to get paid. And you go, I still see dandelions. What did you do? Well, I trimmed your rose bush out back. Well, I appreciate the fact that you pulled the weeds and you trimmed the rose bush, but that isn't what I want you to do. What I want you to do is mow the lawn. In a sense, our neighborhood boy was practicing lawlessness. He wasn't necessarily doing bad things. He probably needed the weeds pulled. Probably needed the rose bushes trimmed. But he didn't do what I wanted him to do. And Jesus said, you may prophesy in my name, you may cast out demons in my name, you might do mighty works in my name, but I will declare, I never knew you. Why? Because you practice lawlessness. What did I want you to do? I wanted to do the one who does the will of my Father. And so we come all the way through this helicopter ride over the sermon on the, on the mount, and we go, what was Jesus saying? He said, let's make this an intimate relationship between you and the Heavenly Father. So I have one question for you. It's a question I had to ask myself. Is not what do I think of my relationship to the Father, 
what would the father say about my relationship to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sort of scooted through this Sermon on the Mount. But we see the theme repeated over and over again. Quiet, private relationship with the Father. It's going to overflow into our day-to-day living, but the focus is the relationship with the Father and doing His will and desiring to be in intimate relationship with Him. Heavenly Father, examine our hearts. Test us and see where we are. And Heavenly Father, draw us into your presence that we might live these ways that the Son has described. Heavenly Father, keep us from lawlessness, just doing those things that we think would be pleasing to you instead of doing those things which actually please you. Which is that intimate walk with you. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.